Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. If, if we haven't met, I'm, I'm Pastor Tony. And just a quick word, that's the third time you've heard somebody say that. If we haven't met, this is who I am. Uh, understand that part of what that means is that we think there are some of you we haven't met yet. And, and we're hoping next week there's going to be people here that we haven't met yet. And so um, that's why we do that. Anyway, it's my privilege here to, to, to bring kind of the last message in our summer series on the book of Acts. And Shauna's done a good job uh, introducing us this morning to, to the idea of, of being afraid. Have, can I ask you, have, have you ever been scared? I, I don't mean the kind of scared like a sibling jumps out from behind the door and you're startled, although we use the word that way, right? But have you ever been scared? The kind of fear that, that's a heart-stopping, kind of paralyzing sort of, of fear. Uh, maybe that's a silly question. Uh, in, the last, in the last year or two, there have been a lot of groups of people where fear has kind of been their stock in trade. They've been working really hard to, to, to keep us or to make us afraid. But, but there is a fear that, that goes even beyond that. I, I had to be reminded, I, I couldn't help but be reminded when I was a kid, my sister, who's just a couple years older than me, she was in middle school. I was in upper elementary, early middle school. We were at home. It was just my sister and I in the house at the time. And all of a sudden, I hear my sister's blood-curdling scream from the kitchen. And I thought, what on earth is going on? So I went out to the kitchen to find her huddled up on one of the kitchen chairs in a ball, essentially paralyzed. And she informed me that a mouse had come and run over her foot and she was paralyzed. Now, in, in the house we grew up in, it was, it was fine. I had a very good upbringing, but, but our house, that wasn't the first time she'd seen a mouse. It wouldn't be the last. She figured it out as she got older. But that's one of the things that fear can do to us. Fear can cause this almost paralysis. Like if I don't move or go anywhere or do anything, then whatever I'm afraid of isn't going to happen. And the other thing that happens when we're afraid occasionally is that we go into a panic, right? It's almost the opposite. If I do enough and, and if, if, I, if I do enough stuff just right and if I line everything up and if everything's perfect and I keep busy enough, then whatever I fear isn't going to ever catch up with me. I want you to look, we're going to look at a passage from Acts chapter 27, nearing the end of the book of Acts. An absolutely frightening situation. And I'm going to invite you to look for two different images of what fear is like. Okay? 
That's in our text today from Acts 27. I'm gonna read it, and and if you're following along, we're gonna start in verse 13, but before I start reading, I need to set this up just a little bit. So give me a minute to set this up. Um, If you've been following with us in Acts, uh, you know that we're following the life of Paul. Paul has been arrested. Paul has faced a couple of different trials in front of a couple of different governors. He's been on house arrest for a while. And finally, Paul, kind of out of desperation, it seems, makes an appeal to Caesar. Now, any citizen of Rome could appeal to Caesar. Caesar saw himself as the protector of the Roman citizenry. And so to appeal to Caesar was kind of like in the US appealing to the Supreme Court. Caesar had the final say. So since he appealed to Caesar, Paul has to get to Rome. So there's a Roman guard over Paul and several other prisoners, and they have booked passage, as it were. They have found the opportunity to go to Rome on an Alexandrian cargo ship from Alexandria, Egypt, hauling grain from Egypt to Rome. So they're on the Mediterranean. These three groups of people on the same boat, some prisoners, some soldiers who were charged with getting the prisoners to Rome safely, and the sailors who were in charge of the boat. And they're on the Eastern Mediterranean at a time of the year when nobody in their right mind would be on the Eastern Mediterranean. It's late, probably October or early November. It's at the end of the shipping season. In the winter on the Eastern Mediterranean, nobody sailed. Nobody in their right mind did. It was too dangerous. And Paul had already warned them, it's too late in the year. Let's not do this right now. But prisoners don't necessarily have a say over such matters. And so here they are, trapped on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, trapped in a harbor that isn't going to be sufficient for the winter. They'll they'll not be able to winter where they are and waiting for an opening in the weather. All they need is a brief window to get partway around the island of Crete to a place where they can winter for the rest, spend the rest of the winter. So here they are waiting and that's where we pick the story up in Chapter 27, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, that's their opportunity, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. The island of Crete, by the way, is about 150 miles long and 25 miles wide, but on that 25-mile width of an island, there are mountains that top over 8,000 feet. So imagine how rugged this is, 8,000 foot tall mountains in a 25 mile wide island. Before long, verse 14, before long, a wind of hurricane force called a Northeaster swept down from the island, down out of those tall mountains. The ship was caught by the storm. It could not head into the wind, and so we gave way to it and were driven along. That's the first kind of uh uh-oh moment, right? 
We can't go where we need to go. We're at the mercy of the wind and the waves. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And by the way, you don't want to be caught in a storm anywhere on a boat without a lifeboat. That's not a good thing. So the men hoisted it aboard and they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. <coughs> that the, the idea is that when boats fail, and I talked to somebody just this past week who had been a sailor and said that's true. When boats fail, typically they burst open at the seams. And so this passing of ropes, heavy ropes, almost like cable, and pulling it together tight would add strength to the ship so that it wouldn't fail to hold it together because they were afraid they'd run aground on sandbars of Sirtis. And they lowered the sea anchor and they let the ship be driven along. We, notice Luke is with them, the pronoun we, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. You notice the beginning of some panic, right? Begin to lighten the ship, throw the cargo overboard. That's the whole purpose they were going to Rome in the first place. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That'd be all the stuff you need to sail the ship that would have been up on the deck, the tackle, the stuff that would have been sliding around, threatening to knock them off the deck of the ship every time it heaved one direction or the other. Get rid of all of that. Clear the decks, lighten the ship. When the sun, when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Panic gives way to paralysis. After they had gone a long time without food, now notice a separate, a different image. Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. In the 21st century, they might have said, no, duh, right? I mean, we've kind of gotten that by now, Paul. Thank you. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss, but now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. How are we going to be saved if this ship is destroyed. Isn't this ship what's keeping us from drowning right now? He goes on to explain why he can say that. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, remember they cleared the deck on the third? It's now nine days later. They've been two weeks in this storm, tossed about at the mercy of the wind and the waves on the Mediterranean. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. 
And for those of you that are really into geography, we currently in the Western world call the Adriatic Sea that part of the Mediterranean that's just east of Italy. But in the Roman Empire, all of the Eastern Mediterranean was called the Adriatic. So they're being driven all across the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. About midnight, the sailors sensed we were approaching land. That had to be, we're approaching land. See, now, to me, I'm not a sailor, but to me, approaching land would be, that's what I want, right? That'd be a good thing. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep, and a short time later, they took soundings again, and it was about 90 feet deep. Yeah, we really are. The, the, the sailors, what they sensed is true. We really are approaching land. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks... Oh, the sailors knew that. I wouldn't have. I would have been excited. We're coming next to land. They're going, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting too shallow. I don't know. Fearing that they'd be dashed against the rock, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. Have you ever been in a storm of some kind or in the middle of a night and you're at the end, and your only hope is to drop an anchor and pray for daylight. You been there? I'm gonna step away from the text just for a minute to remind you of this. When you've got nothing left but to pray for daylight, always remember that daylight always comes. It never comes soon enough. It never comes as soon as we want to. But daylight always comes. It does. And it's really hard to remember that at those times when when we just want the night and the storm to end. Back to the text. Verse 30, in an attempt to escape the ship, see, the the, the sailors know this is a bad sign. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were gonna lower some anchors from the bow. The, The sailors were gonna abandon ship and leave the ship to the soldiers and the prisoners who probably don't know anything about sailing a ship. But they're so desperate, we've got to get off this boat. And Paul recognizes it and goes, we don't stand a chance if the people who know how to sail this thing get going or or, or leave. And so Paul goes to the centurion and says, unless these men stay with the ship, you will not be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and let the lifeboat to the, that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Panic? Yeah. And they cut away the lifeboat and the sailors are stuck there on the boat with everybody else. And then we get a picture of Paul again. And and see how different this image is. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. He said, you've been in constant eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. 
Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And some of you may hear your grandmother or your aunt or one of your parents saying, eat something, sit down, it'll be fine. Eat something. After he had said this, Paul took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them and broke it and began to eat. He did what in essence for us would be, he set the table and he sat down and he ate. I assume they didn't probably have a table, but he took the time to prepare the meal and set it out and relax and have a meal. And apparently it worked. Because in verse 36, it says they were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Probably aren't going to get another meal on this boat. And the grain goes into the sea. And then verse 39, when daylight came. Remember, always does. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach and they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Now, this is a plan I can get behind, right? I don't know what this land is up here, but there's a beach. And if we can get as close to that beach as possible and run aground, this looks like a good idea to me. And so cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time they untied the ropes that held the rudders and they hoisted the foresails to the wind and they made for the beach. Yes, we're gonna make it. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground and the bow stuck fast and wouldn't move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf And if there ever was a case of our hopes being dashed, this might have been it. You can get an image even, I I see it. It's almost like, I can almost feel the movement of the crew and the soldiers and these 276 people all working their way up toward the front of the ship that's stuck because the back of the ship is being destroyed. And piece by piece, board by board, the water and the surf and the wind is destroying the very deck that I'm standing on. Ah, and we were so close. Verse 42, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping because good Roman soldiers knew that if any of my prisoners escape, my life is gonna be at risk. And to save their own lives, if they could report that all the prisoners died in the storm, then they would know nobody would hold them responsible for an escaped prisoner. But this centurion who had been with Paul now these last months, probably years, this centurion sees this happening. Verse 43, the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. Okay, I feel okay about that because I'm an okay swimmer. But what if you're not? Well, the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. Did you catch that on planks or other pieces of the ship? 
the destruction of the very ship on which they were standing became the salvation for those who could not swim. As you're going into the sea, you are thinking, we're doomed. This ship is being busted up. And once you're in the sea and there's a plank, you're going, I might be saved because the ship was busted up. An amazing image. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. It's not a happily ever after kind of story. If you go on to chapter 28, you realize that that tells the rest of the story. Paul gets taken the rest of the way to Rome and he does stand trial before Caesar and he's not found guilty, but he's also not completely released. And he spends the next couple of years in Rome telling people about Jesus. but not without getting through the shipwreck first. Did you see the contrasting images in the midst of the storm? Paul, kind of confident, and everybody else, panicked, paralyzed. What's the difference? See, it's tempting to think, oh, well, Paul had a good time. Paul, Paul had an easy time of it. No, Paul was in the exact same storm on the exact same ship. He experienced everything that the soldiers and the sailors experienced. What makes the difference? Well, I suppose there's lots of things we could fill in the blank. There's lots of things that that make a difference in a case like that. But I want to draw specifically on Paul's words from verse 23. When he wants to to encourage those who are on the boat, when he wants to explain the reason for the confidence that he has, that everything's gonna be okay, he talks about this angel and he says last night, an angel of, and catch this, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. To whom I belong. That's his reason for confidence. In in the middle of the storm, notice that he doesn't say, the God who belongs to me. He uses that language in other places and it's true that God is is mine, that Jesus is mine. That's, That's true, but it's not where Paul goes in the middle of the storm. He doesn't say my God, he says the God whose I am, the God to whom I belong. He also doesn't say the God I believe in, although clearly Paul believes in this God who can save him, but he doesn't stand on his belief in the middle of the storm. He stands on on the fact that he belongs to God. I'm reminded of an image from the movie series, the, the Toy Story movies. Some of you have seen those, I'm sure. And the, the, the director and the, the writers of those movies and the director uses this image where when the toys wonder, am I okay? 
is do I have value? Am I useful? Does, do I matter? And, and they see that on the bottom of their foot, it says, Andy. And they're encouraged because they belong to Andy. Paul stands in front in the middle of the storm, in the dark of the night. Paul stands before the rest of the crew and the soldiers and the other prisoners that are there. And he says, I belong to God. I am his. And that's the reason he stands there before them. That's where he draws from as he explains his confidence. For those of us who are in Christ, we can say with Paul that we are his. And, and that can be our basis for calm in the midst of whatever storm we find ourselves. God even uses this language in, in the, the, through the prophet Jeremiah. In, in the book of Jeremiah, Paul, or, uh, God is saying, he's explaining the new covenant. And he says, under this new covenant, in this new design, in this new relationship, I will be their God and they will be mine. They will be my people. When the storms rage, whatever they look like, they may not be real, they may not be weather-related storms. They may be all, they take all kinds of forms, don't they? But in the midst of the storm and in the dark of the night, you can take comfort and you can have courage. Not so much because you believe the right thing, not so much because of what you've done, not even because of what you hope for, but you can stand in the midst of the storm and the night because you are his. You can avoid the panic and the paralysis because you're his. You can last until daybreak because in Christ Jesus, you are his. I don't know of anything that's more powerful, more calming, more able to sustain and encourage than that truth. There may be nothing more important in the midst of storm than to remember that through it all, through all of it in Christ, you are his. Amen. Let's pray.